Rob mentioned it last week. I mentioned it at Brentwood. We're mentioning it at all of our campuses. And you all, the first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you for your regular giving. Do you know you have given so generously over these 20 years? We've never been in budgetary constraints or challenges. And in fact, do you know over that time, we've never had a capital campaign to pay for all that we've built and the things that we have. Uh, and yet we've reduced our our mortgage down. You know, it's around two point five million now, down from twelve million. That's not, and it's not because we said let's have a campaign. It's because we're, your giving enabled us to bring that down. Uh, and we're in some challenging days right now. Quite frankly, you know that with some changes that that, that, that we've made. And so, uh, I simply want to say, you know, not to take away from a global giving because that's our commitment. But it's your regular giving week by week, month by month, that enables us to do global, so to speak, and the things we do there. So we want to make a point of it to say to you, would you not forget and keep your local church, your, you know, your fellowship, your community of faith, Fellowship Franklin, a priority as you, as you think about your end giving. Now, open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Uh, we are in the Advent season the season of Christ's coming. One of my favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem, writes this, quote, It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe, end quote. More profound than the creation of the world, the incarnation, the advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus in which God took on human Flesh. This morning, we're not going to look so much at the, at the fact of the Advent. Uh, where I'm going to get to is going to be extremely personal. And it comes down to the implications of the Advent, the coming of Jesus for me and for you. John, in his gospel account, gives us the Christmas story uh, in, a, in a strange way. There are no familiar characters here. We don't find uh, them in the manger, in the feeding trough. We don't find the innkeeper who has no room. Uh, there are no animals. It is a cosmic Christmas, truly, when we read this. I'm going to focus on verses 14 to 18, but I want to read the whole prologue to capture the words and the theme by which we land at the incarnation, per se. So, follow along in your Bibles. Notice John begins his gospel in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. So this word is a him. It's it's Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Life, light. Keep that in mind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was one true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world 
And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How about this for the Christmas story? And then he gets to some language that is so close and so earthy, it can feel a little uncomfortable. Because at this point, you know, he's telling the Christmas story in its cosmic sense, you all. He's telling the Christmas story that is actually rooted in pre-time. In eternity past was the Word, was, was Jesus. All things spoken into being by Jesus. And now he's going to get very timely and very earthly. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized, that's fulfilled through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I've got three words for us that guide us through this text. And we speak of the incarnation, the coming of God in the Lord Jesus. We see at least these three things. We see it means the presence of Christ. It means the provision of Christ and it means the proclamation of Christ. So it's, it's presence, provision, and then proclamation. I'm going to hit these very quickly and then we're going to talk about it practically. Uh, the incarnation, it, it means the presence of Christ. Now, when the original readers read this and they saw that, that God took on flesh, I'm telling you that was a, that was a shock to their system. And I think what we may tend to do, not all of us, but I think some of us may tend to do when it says, and God took on flesh, is we can take that word flesh and we can put the Pauline uh, definition of it, which, you know, in, in, Paul, in the epistles, when we speak of the flesh in the New Testament, it's talking about that bent towards sin, that ingrained uh, uh, tainting of our being by which we are bent towards sin. You know, what's our great enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh being not our flesh as in our physical being, but that principle of sin that, that fills every molecule and cell in our body. But when he says he took on flesh here, he's not speaking of, of, of a fallen nature. It's saying he, that, that God himself in Jesus took on human nature. Yes, human flesh, he was a human being like you and me, but also in his nature, he was fully man. And this is so important to understand. And I'm going to slice the onion a little thin here. I might be getting a little too thin, but, but this, is, this really, really matters theologically and biblically. Um, it, it's important to understand the, uh, the deity, when you hear that word, y'all, deity, it means the godness of Christ, that, that it's not 50, per, you know, he was 50% man and 50% God, and when you put those two together, here's the God-man. This is a, this, this is a heresy, an absolute heresy. 
it took the church a long time to just kind of, cl- not kind of, to clarify this. It's, the, the incarnation is that God in his fullness of Godness took on a human nature and the fullness of human nature such that God and man were one, not 50%, 50%. And the implications are, 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 are pretty staggering. I'm going to talk about those in a minute. Took the church 450 years to settle that. Now, it was, it was clarified at the Council of Chalcedon. This is 450 years after Christ. And that document stated this, and I'm just going to read a part of it. It says, Jesus is truly God and truly man. One and the same Christ. To be acknowledged in two natures, nature of God, nature of man, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of their natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, their distinction is not dissolved by their union. But rather, the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. <laughs> you go, well, go ahead, read that again. I'm not going to read it again. What it, what it means is, is that, the, 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 that Jesus Christ was f- fully in nature God and fully in nature man, but there weren't two different people. It was one person. Hey, Lloyd, why does this matter? Why do you keep saying fully God, fully man? Well, listen, Jesus had to be fully God in order to be sinless. You can't have, you can't have 50% God and 50% man and be sinless. No, he's fully God. And I think even more importantly, and this can be a little difficult to grasp, is that when humanity sinned against God, we sinned against an infinite being. And therefore, the, the payment, the, to make right the wrong we've done an infinite being requires an infinite payment. The infinite wrath of God poured out, you see. And so, whoever the sacrifice is going to be to pay our price, he needs to be infinite himself. He's got to be God, fully God. And why does he have to be a man? Because it was man, humanity, that sinned against God. We can't bring a goat in for the final sacrifice. We can't bring a cow in for the final sacrifice. It must be a man, and he must be fully man, or he couldn't die. He had to be fully God and fully man to be the substitution for our sins. Now, it's an interesting word John uses when he describes the presence. And this is the first point I'm making, the presence of Christ. It says that, that God dwelt uh, among them. It's a skeno is the Greek word, and it's, it's tent, it's tabernacle. God pitched his tent among us as people. And it should prompt our minds all the way back to the Old Testament to when God was bringing Israel out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness and he pitches a tent, a tabernacle among them. And you remember how specific all the directions were? Don't you read that sometimes and go, man, he's a stickler for details here. You know, everything's got to be perfect. And he is. And, and, and the placing of the tabernacle itself was really important. Do you remember where the tent was placed? You got seven million Jews around this thing. Where was the tabernacle placed? 
You remember this? Where? Somebody say it. In the very center. In the very center is where this tabernacle was placed. I.e., hey, God is among us. And he was. For you know what happened in that tent? That's where God's presence was. And that's where Moses went to meet with God and talk to God. When Jesus comes on the scene, the baby in that manger, God uses the same terminology to say that God has pinched his tent among us here in John's gospel. This is Christ's birth. Now, the tent in the Old Testament was God's presence in a tent. The the tent of John 1 is the person of Jesus who is fully God. This has never, oh, God's been in it. God's presence has been with his people, but God's presence has, presence has never been in a person as he is in Jesus Christ. The incarnation means his presence in Christ. It also means his provision. Twice John mentions grace and truth, grace and truth, the fullness of grace upon grace. What's What's he talking about here? It's the only time grace and truth are, are used and you know, locked together like that in the whole New Testament is right here. And here's what I want you to know he's not talking about. He's not saying that you know, there was the law, no grace and truth there. Then finally Jesus came and now it's grace and truth. That's not what he's saying at all. If you'll recall what Moses says of the law, what David sings of the law, Psalm 119, what the Old Testament says of the law is that the law is holy and true and pure and righteous altogether. And if it's holy and true and pure and righteous altogether, I assure you it's full of grace and truth. For that's the very, it's the, it, the law is the character of God and therefore the character of God is in the law. And God is gracious and truthful. What, it, what, what it's saying here is that always keep this in mind when you read your Old Testament. That what we read here is always pointing to something else. And it's always pointing to the fullness of that which it's describing. So that you see the tent in the wilderness with the people. It's like God's presence is with them. Yes, but it's pointing to God's presence in them, in the person of Christ, you see. And so the same way with grace and truth. Listen, the law is loaded with grace and truth. But I'm going to tell you something. The fullness of grace and truth, the fulfillment of grace and truth, that's pointing to Jesus, only Jesus. Kostenberger, really good New Testament commentary, writes this in John's Gospel, grace in conjunction with truth, alludes to the Old Testament phrase, loving kindness. Remember this Hebrew word? Hesed. Hesed. In this expression, loving kindness and truth refer to God's covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. According to John, this faithfulness found ultimate expression in God's sending of Jesus, his one-of-a-kind, only begotten son. The incarnation is the fulfillment and the ultimate fullness of grace and truth. It's the ultimate fullness of God's faithfulness. You cannot find that, you know, Jesus is coming again. Of course, that's God's faithfulness. But in the incarnation, we see God's faithfulness 
par excellence in its fullness. Um, we receive grace upon grace. What's that talking about? That, that in Christ there is grace upon grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's to say that in Jesus there is an, an, an undepletable source of favor from God, fullness and kindness. You cannot uh, get to the end of this grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says this, the sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It loses nothing. Thus Christ is a well with no end, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would not lose so much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. Unending grace in Christ Jesus. The presence, the provision, this is the incarnation. It's the, presence of, it's the presence of God. It's the provision of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the proclamation. Look at verse 18 one last time. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That word explained is the word exegete. You know how we say when we teach, we, we exegete the passage. Exegete just means explain. And so when we're exegeting a book of the Bible or a paragraph or a verse, we're explaining that. When, when this says that, that, that uh, he has exegeted him, it's saying this. Jesus gives a full explanation of God the Father. Jesus gives a full explanation of God the Father. Uh, when, when someone, when someone says, uh, you know, they'll say, you'll hear someone say something like, you know, I, I like the God of the Old, or I like the God of the New Testament because he seems so kind and the God of the Old Testament seems so mean. I mean, he does crazy things. We know this, that, you know, biblically you, you can't separate those two things, that this is God in 66 books of the Bible. If anyone says anything about God or if someone were to say, um, this is what I think God is like. And if the next word out of their mouth is not the name Jesus, they're wrong. Okay? You, you, you can't, someone can't say, you know, I think Jesus is like that, but, but I think God is like this. Well, you can't do that because what, we, what have we, we already, we've already seen the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, okay? And Jesus fully exegetes the Father. And so, any definition of God that is not Jesus falls short. That's just a fact. Jesus himself, read Colossians, is the fullness of God. You want to know, you want to know, you know, you go, gosh, what is, what is God like? Well, God became a man and we get to read four gospel accounts of his life. That's what God is like. Specifically, perfectly, and fully, God the Father is proclaimed through the life of Jesus. How is it that Jesus can explain him so fully? Well, let's be logical. Number one, because we've already demonstrated, because he is God. 
On a relational nature, though, I love the way it's said here that the only begotten of God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. Did you notice, by the way, there are people who say, well, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. You can't read that. It says the only begotten God, okay, so whoever this begotten is, he's God, who is in the bosom of the Father, we know the Father's God, so this begotten and the Father are two distinct people, and they're both God. Yes. God the Son, God the Father. Now, what about that phrase, in the bosom of the Father? Do you know what that's a picture of? It's Jesus in the lap of his dad. It's a Hebrew idiom, and honestly, it's an American idiom. My goodness, you know, it's to be close to someone, to be in the bosom of someone. Um, last Christmas, uh, when our son Darden, he's 22 now, he's 21 then, and, and he was home for Christmas holidays. You know, we're just, it's just wonderful time to hanging out with your kids when they're older. And he turns to me and he, and he says something to me. And by the way, I want to say this to every, you know, every uh, young person in the room. I'm telling you, when you go away to college or you go away and do something, you get a little older, you'll start saying things to your parents that you never thought you'd say. You know, I mean, we all did it, didn't we? We all went away. Those of who are adults, we went away and then we came back. And we said, Mom and Dad, can I tell you something? <laughs> when I said that, when I... Anyway, so he looks at me, says, uh, he says, Dad, you know, I keep a photograph of uh, me and you in my wallet. And I said, no, no kidding, really? He said, he said, yeah. And he pulls out this crumpled up photograph and it's a picture of him when he's like, he's maybe six months old. He's a baby. And you know... Every dad in the room's got one of these. You're laying on the couch, you know, and your baby's laying on your chest. And, and he said, Dad, I keep it because you look so happy. And I'm telling you, every dad knows, I don't know how you get happier until you have grandkids, I guess. You know, I'm not there. But, and he said, because you look so happy. And, and, and it, is, it is just such a picture of a closeness. And when it says Jesus in the bosom of the Father, and that's why he can tell us what the Father is like, is that my son, you know, he's six months old. He's, he's, he's unconscious to how, how much I love him and what I'm like. But in t- I'm just telling you, in the image of God as a baby, he can sense my love for him, even as he lays on my chest. And my love for him is beyond words. And when you think about it and you get that picture in your mind, you go, oh my gosh, what love that the son would leave would leave the bosom of his father and become a man so that he could die the death we deserve. What, what, I mean, what, I don't, what kind of love would do that? And do you know that when Jesus took on flesh, men and women, that is the ultimate statement of value to your humanity, you're, that you're made in the image of God and that your body matters. You see, as Christians, we don't, just, we don't just say, you know, it's all spiritual. Our bodies are no good. They're gonna turn to dust anyway. No, no, our bodies are, are, are precious. Jesus didn't put on a piece of trash when he became a human being. He put on the image of God in humanity. And do you know that he will never depart from it? This is mind-boggling to me. In eternity past, the Son of God who spoke the worlds into being, he was spirit, but he loved us so much, he took on flesh. And he will never be rid of it. You think your body doesn't matter? Think he, he doesn't, 
you talk about love. He's, he's taken on a human body and, and he'll always have it. Does that ever blow your mind? It's not like he can do what he did and then kind of unzip the body, step out of it and go, gosh, I'm glad I got all that done. Let me be spirit again. No, he's, he's taken on our humanity because of his great love for us. Well, it, it's interesting that, that John uses this picture and this idea of, of that, that God in the incarnation pitched his tent among us. And I want to just think about that for a minute. And um, when, you, when you think about that, and that's why we've got this up here, is I want you to pause and consider that, you know, if you looked at this and said, well, you know, is, is, I mean, it's just a tent, and I'd go, yeah, yeah, it's just a tent. But if I said, but you understand, this is, you know, when God became flesh and dwelt among us, you know, in that first Christmas, it was just a baby. I mean, it's just a baby. He doesn't have a room to stay in. And when you think about that the fullness of God, which means the fullness of all the benefits of God, it's right, it's right there. The incar- this is the, the incarnation. And, and, and you kind of go, well, you know, I mean, it is a pretty cool tent, but honestly, if, it, if a tornado came, it would not be a very good place to be, would it? I mean, if a tree fell, it would crush it. And that's really, honestly, how the world will always view the incarnation. The world will always, you know, view it as, I mean, you might even say, you know, Je- I mean, okay, okay, I mean, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't God. Oh my gosh, he, you know, that's just, that's a heresy. But there's, I, what I'm getting at is there's like nothing attractive in a way about the incarnation. When you think about it physically and what happened in this world, a baby was born, y'all, to poor people. Okie dokie. No, this was the son of God who left the bosom of his father to come, take on human flesh in order that he could die and pay the penalty for our sin. Fully God, such that he had no sin of his own, and therefore death could not hold him, having satisfied the wrath of God, he rose from the grave. And every hope, every dream, every desire, every longing of the human heart is found in Jesus and what he's done. Period. Period. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, to anyone who's not trusted Christ, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because you think, well, I don't know. That he's just a man. He was just a baby. My gosh, they killed him. And we believe, as the Bible says, yes, they killed him, but he rose from the grave because he was fully God. And the point I want you to see, and this is why I said it gets extremely personal, is that Advent, the coming of Christ, the incarnation is really, I don't, it's, it's really nothing to you until you put your trust in Christ. Remember what the verse said in, in, in John 1? It says, but as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become sons, children of God. To many as received him is to say, but to as many as who, who said, you know what, Jesus, what you did, I believe you did it for me. You died for my sins. You were buried and raised again. And I'm trusting that what you did, having done it for me, that you, Jesus, are in me and I, Jesus, am in you. And you see, when you've placed your faith in Christ and you are now, watch, you are now in Christ, Jesus, you're in the tent. And gang, this is the only place where we recognize that he is the light. You can stand outside a lifetime and see a tent and see a baby, see a man who was a pretty darn good teacher, but died. And it's only when you step inside the tent, putting your trust in this Christ child, that the light goes on, never to be extinguished, and it awakens and opens our eyes to see that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in Adam all die, so also in Christ we're all made alive. That... Therefore, if we're in Christ, we are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. And in Christ, God supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory. That after we have suffered a while, because we will... The God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And while we in Christ may look in the eyes of the world to have put our faith in a pop-up tent that's going to be blown away and crushed, we know that the foolishness of this child born in a manger and this man dying upon a cross while foolishness to the world is the world's only hope. And there is nothing, no nothing on this planet that can crush this tent. While it may look flimsy and weak to the world, it is our rock and our refuge, our strength, We are in the very one who spoke creation into being. We are his, never to be separated from him. And there is nothing, no nothing that can separate us from his love or snatch us from the Father's hand when we're in Christ. The light has come, but we don't see it. Enjoy it. Rest in it until we are in it.
by faith. And so this is the implication of the incarnation. Y'all, are you standing outside looking at it? Or have you placed your faith in him? And when we place our faith in him, what did we read in John? This is life. This is hope. This is joy. What a great reminder for us as we prepare to receive an offering we call our global Christmas offering. I'm going to ask the the band to come back out and and join me. Um, They are going to sing over us. We're going to sing with them. And it's a, it's the right reminder, you all. Um... What happens when we step inside the tent, you see, is that we see the light. Hello. And the Now Jesus will never do that. Never. Never will he just deflate right before your eyes. Tim. Um but what we find is when we see the light, the light gives us life and the light and the life of Christ change us. We are born holding on to everything we can get. The gospel opens our hands to say, wait, I, I have received this life and this light in order that I may give this light and this light to others. What, 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 what does Jesus say? You know, put the lamp on the lampstand. The life you've received, give that others may receive it. And at this point, we have gotten to the bullseye of the mission of the church and of us as believers. And that is to say, we take the life that's given to us and we live the rest of our life on this planet extending that life to others. One of the ways we get to do that is through our global partners. Y'all, there are people that are in places we will never go, can't go, can't speak the language, couldn't survive there. But God has placed them there and then connected us with them that in our giving, less under our tree, more for the world, we extend the light of Christ. We get to extend the light of Christ. This is who we are, it's what God has made us to do and be. And so I'm going to ask the ushers to prepare to receive a global offering. We will, we will celebrate that in song and then uh, we'll conclude with a brief benediction. Pray with me, Father, for your goodness to us that is beyond measure, that while we can't get our head around the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation, we can get our head and our minds around the reality of the gospel, that it's true and that what Jesus did, he did for us and having trusted that, we extend that message to the world and we do so with great gladness in Christ's name, amen.